the only tool missing from your belt. Simpro, total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work. Welcome back to the Security Insider podcast and our guest today is Michael Gipps. Michael has been ranked number one globally for security thought leadership. He is a security consultant, content specialist and recipient of the Outstanding Security Consultant Award. In addition to holding a degree in law from Harvard University, Michael is also a certified protection professional, certified security professional, certified association executive, and certified insider risk program manager with ACES. Today, we talk about a paper that Michael put out last year, uh, focusing on the top 23 trends, challenges, and predictions for security going into 2023, or coming out of 2023 and going into 2024. And it was a fantastic conversation, which we are going to present in two parts. This first part of the podcast today covers a whole range of areas, but rather than reading them off for you in advance, let's just simply get into the conversation. Michael, welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, John. It's a real pleasure to be on the program. Now, for those people who may not be familiar with you, and I imagine more will be than won't be, can you tell us a little bit about your your background and what you do? Sure. I started my career as an attorney. That only lasted a couple of years, but it, it lasted enough to know that I didn't really like practicing law, but I did like security. And, uh, and crime issues, crime prevention. And I, I turned to freelance writing and wrote about those issues Then started working for ASIS as a magazine writer and editor. And my career progressed there beyond just the writing and editing to starting the CSO Center, which is a group within ASIS focused on the senior most security executives. And in effect, I became a content developer, consultant, subject matter expert, I uh, pivoted back to um, become the publisher of of uh, ASS's magazine, and then when the current CEO came on board, he promoted me to be a chief global knowledge and learning officer. So I, I added responsibility for standards and guidelines, certifications, uh, all content events, and I became the chief security officer. Yeah. And in the past four years, I've been on my own doing content development. Uh, strategic uh, advice and consultation for security firms, helping uh, security innovation and technology, things like that. And uh, somewhere in there managed to get yourself voted the number one global influencer in security as well. Yeah, well, I had to pay off some people, but, you know. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you were in the perfect position to do it. You had all the relationships (laughs) in place. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. (laughs) So today we are talking about a paper that you put out last year, the top 23 security trends of 2023 heading into 2024. 
and there's quite a bit here to go through. But can you tell us a little bit about how this paper was developed? Because this wasn't you just sort of sitting around scratching your backside going, hmm, what are the problems in the world? You went out and consulted with quite a number of people. Is that correct? I did. I'm not saying I didn't scratch my backside, but <laughs> I did do it with, um, with after consulting with several people. A couple of years ago, as I, um, as I left ASS and forged out on my own, I was creating a brand identity and I, obviously I want to uh, stay involved in, in the security world and um, keep up to date on, on events, technologies and, and incidents and trends. So I started putting on my own blog, um, the, the best security content of the year, the most significant security incidents, the biggest trends. And then uh, after a couple of years of doing that, ASIS said, why don't you do that? for our blog. So for the past couple of years, ASIS has sponsored it and I've formalized it by going out and consulting with, as you said, experts from all over the world, from different vertical markets. It includes end users, consultants, vendors, academics, uh, different stages of career, as I said, different geographies, and uh, to get a, a holistic global view because I keep, you know, closely attuned to what's going on, but no one person can, can really, you know, um, pontificate on, on all the issues out there. I needed expert advice and consultation, certainly to cover different areas of the world and, and, and certain trends that I wasn't as familiar with. Sure. Well, I'm sure we've both met those who would have us believe that they are in a position to pontificate about all <laughs> things great and wonderful. But uh, as you say, it's uh, it's hard to keep across all of it on your own. Now, absolutely. If you've you've broken this list down into different groups, and the first group is geopolitical and global conflicts, and it should come as no great surprise to anyone that the Ukraine war was listed as sort of like one of the biggest concerns out of 2023 going into 2024. But some of the reasons it was listed as one of the major concerns may catch some people by surprise. So can you walk us through why the Ukraine war was such a, uh, a significant talking point? Sure. And I want to point out that the Ukraine war has been overshadowed a bit by the Israel-Hamas war, but it's no less significant or virulent um, or impactful. And, you know, Putin has been strengthening his attacks against civilian infrastructure. I actually had the opportunity, or I almost had the opportunity to go to Ukraine, but I've been in touch with um, police officials. I've, I've actually written articles about how police there are both civilian officers and, um, you know, are taking part in their armed forces. So they have dual roles. And hearing about their roles in private security really protecting um, civilian infrastructure that's being fiercely attacked by, uh, by the Russians through missiles, through drones. Um, the populations there continue to be displaced. People uh, with population shifts that, that puts pressure on border companies. It, it exports arms. So there's all sorts of um, military level armaments throughout that country and they're crossing borders pretty easily. And that sort of ties into one of the other trends. Um, so it's creating, uh, it's displacing populations, creating instability 
disrupting supply chains, important pipelines, obviously going through the region. Um, Russia uh, turns on and off flows of things like oil, you know, to uh, to exert pressure. Um, so really, even though life goes on, if you're not in Eastern Europe, Russia, it really, uh, uh, our, our life around the world is greatly impacted by what's going on in Ukraine and, and Russia. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, supply, train, supply chain disruptions aside, I mean, that's one that everyone's been talking about for the last couple of years since this kicked off. But one of the things I hadn't really thought about, which makes perfect sense in hindsight, is the the military-grade armaments that are sort of floating around in that region now that are making their way off the battlefield into the black market and into organised crime groups and other sorts of things. And I guess to some degree, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, we're seeing a replication of kind of what we saw with the Mexican drug cartels after the Afghanistan withdrawal when the Taliban started selling off a lot of the the left-behind U.S. military surplus. We're seeing a similar kind of thing happening across Europe now. Yeah, that I think that's a good example. All, um, also, the Balkan wars, in the wake of those wars, we had an incredible proliferation of armaments on the black market and crossing borders, and some of those are still kicking around. I mean, it's it's a while ago now, but yes, I think you um, that's a good historical analogy. Yeah. Now, the second one, which will come as no great shock to anyone, um, but it's interesting to know the reasons why, is the Israel-Hamas war that's kicked off in the last 12 months. Uh, I mean, that's a a horrendous situation on a a whole range of fronts, but let's talk a little bit about the impact that it's having as far as global security and and corporate security is concerned and why. Absolutely. So, for one thing, a lot of companies do business in the Middle East, in Israel, in affected areas. When you do business there, it's always political. There, you know, there are examples like I, I think it was the Coke or Pepsi. When one of them was in Israel, the other one took advantage of the Arab market to really, you know, gain a foothold. So um you, you kind of play both sides there. Uh so companies have to tread lightly. There was um for years, there's been a um, a boycott, um, a BDS boycott, divest. Um, um, I forgot what the S is for at the moment. Um, but to kind of pull uh, investments out of Israel, and that's really heated up. There's a lot of pressure on companies that do business in Israel because of you know what's going on in Hamas. I I believe that October seventh, Hamas killed twelve hundred. Israelis took another 250 or so hostage. And in the ferocious counterattack, Israel killed more than 25,000 Gazans. And there's a lot of ways to look at it. There are people who say that is disproportionate. You know, it's 1,200 to 25,000. That can't stand. And then there are other people who say, well, if someone attacked my country and killed 1,200 my people, of such a small population in the United States would be the equivalent of, I don't know, killing 50,000 people or something like that. You know, we'd wipe that other country off the map, you know, you know, disproportionate, you know, schmish proportionate, right? Yeah. So the very, very different. And, you know, you can see how people 
yeah. strongly things. Well, all over the world, there are um, people who are extremely um, pro-Palestinian, extremely pro-Israel, and the pro is and the pro-Palestinian element mixes with potential anti-Semitism. So it's anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. And there are arguments on that, right? Sometimes maybe it can be, and sometimes it's not. Yeah. And you have demonstrations all over the world. Companies are doing business in Israel, uh, you know, can be demonized. There are boycotts, you know, against some uh, boycott divestiture sanctions. (laughs) That's BDS. So, um, so that is really stronger, um, more virulent and forceful than it has. There are um, marches through New York every day. There are people who are stopping airport traffic. Um, they are, they're sitting in front of bridges and tunnels in New York to disrupt um, the economy, to disrupt the flow of traffic of goods. And this is not just a, a U.S. or New York thing. It's happening in countries around the world. Meantime, so there's a, an, an enormous sense of grievance on the on the half of, on uh, on the part of people who support the Palestinian cause. Um, they they don't have a homeland. Israel has a homeland. Palestinians are second class citizens, etc. That's the argument. Um, on the other hand, you have um, very strong also communities. I don't, I'm not sure in number, but who strongly support the right of Israel to exist. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric on both sides. Who was there first, right? Um, and around the world, you have, um, you know, universities, division of universities where there are protests and, you know, so maybe Arab students feel uncomfortable or Jewish students feel like they're, um, they're being picked on and they don't have any protection on campus. It's a real uh, kind of... Uh, a boiling pot, yeah. um, not just, you know, not just in that region. I mean, it's full out all over the world. I know that Australia has issues as well. Um, maybe it's not as um, manifest as it is in the United States and, and in Western Europe and London. It's, it's, it's big also. And it tends to happen when there are Arab and Jewish uh, communities that live in close proximity. And it, you know, it's not just, if it were easy for just hey Arabs against Jews, but it's not. There are plenty of there. There's a subset of each that kind of sides. You know, it says I understand the side of the other. There's liberal Jews who say, you know, there shouldn't be an Israel. You know, out of Palestine. Or, uh, there are there are Arabs, especially Christian Arabs, who say you know Israel has a right to exist. So that has been rippled throughout the world and um, you know on campuses on the streets of the city. Um, and it's even so, you know, it got to the, it's getting to the point, and this is not like, hasn't happened before, but friends and colleagues on Facebook and LinkedIn are, are disconnecting from each other because yeah. they're so divided and they see the world so differently. Um, and you also have disinformation that fuels it. So, so much of this goes on social media and you put a picture in and I'm not saying you know, that a lot of these pictures are true, but if somebody has an inkling that, oh, that wasn't really, that's not a Gaza child, or that wasn't a woman from Israel, somebody, you know, uh, played with the image 
this is a whole, you know, this is a false flag operation. Yeah. You know, there's a, um, accusations back and forth that it's ginned up and that the other side is the devil and, you know, that there, it's just a misinformation campaign. So that makes things more confusing and it locks people ideologically um, on one side or the other. So, yeah, well, it seems, it's a, it, it, yeah. sorry to jump in. I was just going to say, it seems that we're through this conflict, we're seeing the continuation of something that we've seen on the political side of things over the last couple of years, where we now have, you know, the rather ineptly named social media. And I say that because it's usually more anti-social <laughs> media. Um where companies for one reason or another, and I'm not really sure why in this environment of corporate social responsibility, feel like they need to come down on one side or other of a conflict to show that they're, you know, uh, doing the right thing from a corporate social responsibility point of view. And security managers must just be sitting there shaking their head saying, please don't, we make breakfast cereal. We don't need to get involved in wars in the Middle East because as you said, when you do, you risk things like product tampering because people who are disgruntled with the position that you've taken that may be workers on your production line may choose to you know, carry out product tampering or you risk uh, vandalism or you risk boycotts or you risk social unrest. And I mean, I can't even imagine what this must be like at the moment for you know university campus security departments because, of course, universities are full of everyone between the ages of 18 and 23 who know everything about the world. <laughs> right. And are, are not afraid to tell everyone and, and exactly. demonstrate. Yep. You made really good points with product tampering and, and, and reputation. I'm just thinking of, you know, Ben and Jerry came out and Ben and Jerry are Jewish, by the way, but they're very yep. liberal Jews, Jews. And they came out, you know, very you know, pro-Palestine as is their right. Yep. But, I'm a brand manager. I I blanch at that and say, you really want to um, alienate all your Israel supporting you know uh, consumers? And I know Jewish people and, and others, not just Jewish people, who said I'm not having Ben and Jerry's anymore because they you know they they won't shut up. On the other hand, there have been some donors to um, to like University of Pennsylvania where they had a lot of problems on campus and. They said, you know, they pulled back big donations. So, but there's a ripple effect. So this, you know, person said, okay, I'm, I have a $50 million endowment or whatever. Now I'm not giving it to Penn anymore, which yeah. is their right. But then they're also saying until, you know, they're, they're making demands. So it's like, okay, now they're leveraging their money and they're saying, I'm not going to hire anyone who demonstrated on behalf of Palestine. Now, do you really want that? Look, they're exercising the right to free speech. So you really want to come down on that side and, and say, okay, now this person, we don't want to hire, you want to work for them anyway, because they don't, um, you know, they don't accept uh, dissent or, you know, free debate. So, uh, I mean, they might argue, well, these are just people who are advocating violence, you know, against Jews or Israelis, but sometimes the lines get blurred, right? We're not a very nuanced society. So, there, there, there are problems all over the place for brands, for uh, consumer loyalty, um, product tampering, um, you know, all, all these factors, violence in the workplace, um, uh, you know, um, smear campaigns, things like that. 
Yeah. And of course, this brings us to the the third prong in our. Well, we used to have the uh, the axis of evil. Now I think we've got the axis of WTF, which brings us to, you know, between <laughs> Ukraine, Israel, and now China and the APAC region. Uh, that's again become one of those things where a lot of security managers are putting their hand up, saying this is going to be a cause of of problems, especially in the APAC region where we survive, where we exist. Can you walk us through the thoughts on that? Sure. You know that China has for, for years, and China sees things not in years, but in decades and, and in epics and eras, they, they, they move slowly but inexorably towards what they want. Now, in the last you know, 30 years in, for the Western world, China has been undergoing a campaign to thieve intellectual property, um, uh, proprietary information, uh, sensitive data from corporations, from governments, from research facilities, institutions, um, and uh, it, it written into the Chinese law basically is if, if you get access to um, com- competitive data or information, then you have to provide it to the Chinese government mm. or the Chinese military. So there's, I forget what the name of the campaign is, like, um, but there's, but Chinese uh, businesses, companies are incentivized to steal information. And if you talk to any of the FBI folks who um, have been in charge of um, prosecuting cases against Chinese nationals and non-Chinese nationals, Americans who, who get bribed or um, otherwise involved in, in um, intellectual property theft, um, there, if you just look it up, Department of Justice database, there are dozens and dozens of cases constantly in every, in every vertical market, you know, from, um, from aviation to agriculture, seed development, to, um, uh, electric vehicles, um, pretty much satellites, um, everything, uh, wind turbines, everything under the sun. So as part of that, um, Chinese, the Chinese are flexing their economic um, and military power, and they've been making. You know, there's, there's no, there's no secret they've been making design, have designs on Taiwan, um, and a lot of people are predicting it's only a matter of time for Taiwan goes the way of, really the way of Hong Kong. Yeah, um, Hong Kong, you know, was a British protectorate, obviously, and now, um, you know, since 1999. It's supposed to be sort of a middle state where, okay, it's kind of on its own, but really um, the Hong Kong government has been uh, sort of planted by, by China. So the president, President Xi Jinping uh, used his annual New Year's address this year to warn Taiwan's voters ahead of their presidential election, um, saying that the reunification of China and Taiwan is a historical inevitability. Um, basically, that's you know, um, uh, saying, you know, it's just don't, don't get too comfortable. You know, we're, we're, we're coming for you. So the specter of China in that region is growing ever larger. Um, they, you know, saber rattling against, you know, the, the, the United States, um, they've inroads where they have organized hackers 
who work for the government, Volt Typhoon. Um, Volt Typhoons is one of them. They're attacking critical infrastructure in Western countries and around the world. China is knee deep in, uh, in mineral exploration in in Africa. Um, they, you know, are looking. I think they take umbrage that the United States declared the only superpower, and they see it as their sort of inevitable uh, um, destiny to um, to really have hegemony. Um, so, but it's not just China in the area. You know, you've got North Korea, which for you know, but for nuclear weapons would be sort of a banana republic. But yeah. you have. Uh, <laughs> A, a harshly repressed society. You have a um, megalomaniacal dictator um, launching satellites, rockets into the, the Sea of Japan, the Chinese, uh, 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 you know, in, uh, near South Korea, Japan. They're building drones. Um, they are, again, you know, protected by China, who at least kind of looks the other way at worst. Um, causing problems in the region, threatening Japan, obviously, you know, other Western powers. Um, and then Japan is kind of beset on all sides. Japan, who used to be a major aggressor in the region, obviously look back to World War II and everything that led up to that. But in the past decades, um, especially, you know, with the Marshall Plan, um, bringing them back up, they're getting their economy back. Decades ago, they really went, um, they, they really didn't have much of a military. But now, because of all the um, power flexing region, they're set to become the third largest military spending spender in the next few years, with something like three hundred fifteen billion dollars um, to be to be spent. And I didn't realize that bit. I mean, I, I have contacts in um, in Asia who who gave me that information. Peter Tan, for example, in Singapore, who's a a, a CSO of the Polytechnic Institute. Um, he uh, apprised me of, of what's going on in Japan, but so that whole region, everyone's responding to uh, to China and their grandiose plans. Yeah, and and it's always fascinating to me that China is completely and totally unrepentant about its efforts <laughs> to steal, gather you know, uh, bribe, do whatever it takes to get corporate sensitive information as far as uh, uh, getting a technical advantage moving forward. They, they don't even try and hide it. They quite openly and blatantly say, yes, yes, we do. Bad luck. What are you going to do about it? Um, yeah. It's almost like it's become this game of cat and mouse where they're daring people to try and stop them. And, and if I understand correctly, alluding back to the act that you were talking about before, there was a, a piece of legislation brought in in China, which the name alludes me at the moment, in 2018, I believe, that basically said any Chinese corporation must accede to the demands of the Chinese government if they, you know, turn around and say, okay, well, I want a, um, I want a backdoor into the uh, the modems that you're building that allows us to access information or I want a, a way of getting into the software that you're creating that allows us to capture information, any organization operating out of China has no choice but to exceed. They have to say yes. Exactly. And, and you raise another um, facet of this, which is they're very good at social media and 
media manipulation and getting into markets and winning hearts and minds, you know, TikTok, yeah. you know, people say, oh my God, TikTok is, is, is mining the data of our children. Well, that hasn't stopped everyone in the, every kid in the world from using TikTok. The other battlefield here is drones. There's a company that makes most of the drones that are used by both recreation, commercial and law enforcement slash public safety um, authorities. They're, they're cheap. They work pretty well. And um, they're subsidized by Beijing. So there are hundreds of departments of police departments in the United States alone and surely throughout the world throughout that the use world. these drones. Yeah. Despite the fact that for five, more than five years, uh, Department of Defense, other government agencies have said there are huge vulnerabilities here. Um, it's a very high likelihood. First of all, the company is associated with the the Chinese government. There's a, a very strong likelihood enough for us to issue bans and warnings that there are vulnerabilities and that the data about our critical infrastructure is being sucked into Beijing. So now they know, you know, they have perfect layout of bridges or power plants, um, you know, airports, wherever a drone can fly, wherever a police drone can fly. And that's worrisome. And the police, you would think, would hand over those drones, you know, in a second. But they don't because the drones work and they're helping them. They're, they're, they're doing work that, you know, they're saving manpower, especially since police um, enrollment is on the decline. There was, uh, you know, there, there were movements after George Floyd really around the world to defund police departments, um, to move the money to other areas. There's a lot, there's a lot more disrespect to police. It's less, um, you know, a desirable career. So, a lot of retirements, harder time recruiting. So and as the technology uh, improves, drones help a lot of these things. You know, they can go to a traffic accident and say, okay, there's no big problem. We don't have to send an officer, right? They can go into a dangerous place without risking, you know, the life of, of a um, an officer. And if, if an officer needs to go in, the, the drone information will help make that decision. But if it doesn't, you know, the drone can, can do it. And so it, it saves manpower, it saves lives, it saves injuries. And the Western drones cost a lot more, but they cost a lot more because China subsidizes drones and you know, sell them to, yeah. to, um, to um, cities and states. So on the one hand, you have police who completely understandably want to use these drones to serve, you know, their their communities, to um, to enforce the law, to help people who are who need to be rescued, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They can't afford these, the, the Western drones. And they say, well, you know, we've heard about the data being leaked, but prove it to us. Right yeah. now, we want to use these drones. And so the federal government of the United States just passed a, a statute that requires um, federal agencies to phase out Chinese drones over a couple of years. And some states have done the same thing. And even Florida, if one state said, we'll pay you to get rid of the Chinese drones and to buy other drones. We'll, sub, we'll, we'll, we'll issue grants. But police are still kicking and screaming, saying these Chinese drones are better. Um, this is just American or Western drone companies, you know, trying to control the market where you have, where you have federal and state governments saying, no, 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 no. This is like part of Chinese, you know, um, strategy to suck all the information and get all the data. And, you know, so, 
they have a military advantage. So it's a very um, tricky and vexing situation. Yeah. And I dare say most organizations, most people would be able to name the company that we're speaking about, but they wouldn't be able to tell you for for love or money the name of a simple, single Western company that produces drones. So that also plays a, a, a factor into it too. You're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the last one from a geopolitical point of view that made its way onto the list and kind of caught me by surprise as well was Francophone Africa. And I guess it makes sense from the point of view of when you see a lot of the the internal conflict that's happening around the African region by way of coups and wars and other bits and pieces, and then you see the power brokers behind those conflicts being China and Russia coming in and providing support and weapons and all the rest of it, you run the very real risk that some of the other Western powers are going to look at that and say, okay, well, we can't allow these organisations or these countries, these state-based actors to uh, to come in and meddle in this way. We need to get involved. Talk us through that in, in a, as short a detail as you can, just because we're going to have to move on to part B of this, about how those conflicts could potentially run into superpower-type conflicts. Yeah, and don't worry about me speaking at length about this, because the one I know least about is what... <laughs> This came basically from Victoria, uh, I was pronounced her name, uh, in Kendilum, who's a Nigerian uh, security expert. Uh, she really clued me into onto this, that um, there have been multiple um, coups d'etat, attempted coups, coup d'etat in countries that were formerly um, African colonies. Um, so Guinea, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Gabon, and now that you know the the um, you know they had they were kind of propped up, or I don't want to say propped up, but you know you had the, the colonial um, um, legacy there, and with um, with with French military support being pulled out, now these these countries are considered unstable. They they can't thwart any kind of insurgency, and you know that Africa is. You know, the insurgencies are fairly common, and so the local governments or the 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 the, the uh, national governments, um, you know, with uh, with these insurgents group around, are asking for help for you know who will give it, who's in the neighborhood, who did I say before it was yeah. all over Africa it was China and Russia is there as well, and that's you know another another place for them to assert their their power to extend their their power. Um, so you have Russia and China there. And, well, you know, Russia and China is around there. The U.S. is not going to be far behind. Um, and, and you know, Western powers, um, uh, you know, the European Union is, 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 is going to be, uh, you know, watching that closely. That's in their backyard. So um, now you have a clash, potential clash of superpowers, yet another flashpoint, potentially. Um, and terrorist groups may exploit the situation, you know, to advance their cause or, or, or extremist groups or um, anyone uh, uh, seeking power was a point to me. Yeah. And I think one of the things that surprised me about this that I'd never really considered is in discussing this with other security experts around the region, apparently, and someone will fact check me on this and tell me if I'm wrong and please do. I'm, I'm happy to be told if I'm wrong that uh, uh, if you take China, for example, a significant amount of the income that China generates 
we all in the Western world believe that a lot of China's income comes from the, the white goods they manufacture in their factories. But apparently that income pales in comparison to the nation-building work that they do in emerging economies like Africa, where they go in and, as you rightly pointed out before, everything is looked at in long-term sort of speculation. So 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And by subsidising a lot of the nation-building that goes on in these emerging economies and helping them with infrastructure and equipment and road-building and all the rest of it, not only are they making huge amounts of money by providing all of that, they're setting up infrastructure to generate long-term income as well and also creating reciprocity by helping these nations so that as they start emerging out of that developing nation into a second and first world economy, uh, they're going to be allies of China and potentially Russia down the road. And that's uh, it's kind of scary when you look at the long-term view of it. And that's right. Um, there's nothing I would say really to, you know, to correct you. I, my only um, wrinkle would be, I think that China is providing this infrastructure, these infrastructure improvements. All they're making money, they're probably doing it for pennies on the dollar right now. Yeah. To to win the trust and to get their um, you know, to to uh, get a, a foothold. Uh, really, it's not even a foothold anymore. It's like an anchor hole. Um, but you know, they're doing it. You know, kind of as a quote unquote, like um, you know, nice gesture. But they're really making these governments um, reliant on them. And they're saying, yeah, we were there when, you know, when, when you needed us, they're, uh, they're sort of building themselves into it and they're going to be, they, they're going to be responsible for maintaining the infrastructure, right? So all those um, contracts will be going to things that only their nationals know how they have the know-how or the technology to maintain or repair, right? So they're here. Oh, we, we already control this. Let's move on to the next thing. You can't do this without us. So yeah. yes, they're sinking their uh, their tentacles um, throughout the continent. And it's, you know, not just um, Africa, it's, you know, it's other places. And so, yes, you, uh, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And make no mistake, they're not doing it out of the kindness of their heart. They're doing this in regions <laughs> no, where there are plenty of mining minerals and uh, rare earth elements and other things that they can exploit. And, you know, as painful as it is to see, Afghanistan is another perfect example of that, where the US has had to, for whatever reasons, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that, withdraw from Afghanistan, but then China's just swept straight in, made polls with the Taliban, as I understand it, and said, we don't care how you treat women, we don't care what you do within your own nation, we will provide you with the plant equipment and infrastructure that you need to mine all the rare earth in minerals on the condition that... And then, of course, they they mm-hmm. make the bedrock for their own benefit. Yeah, it's kind of um, not fair when you know, when the other guy doesn't have to worry about pesky human rights abuses and things like that. Yeah, um, it reminds me when um, there's the uh, forget what the province is where the the, the Uyghurs are, and uh, the Biden administration put out some sort of. Um, warning like to u.s companies that don't do business where you know the they exploit the uyghurs blah 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 and all these human rights abuses and so and, and don't import goods from there and i think h&m and nike were two of the places that that did work and they said well the chinese government we can't do that anymore there's a there's a executive order or a law or whatever it was and china said you know they started smearing them and saying well, we're not doing business 
guys anymore. Um, and and Nike and H and M and the other companies were like, whoa, 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 hold, hold up, you know, it's yeah. like it's, we're not doing business with China. That's like you know our shareholders aren't going to be happy. You know, it's not going to do wonders for bottom line. You know, we're not going to be able to be competitive. It's like so they had to balance that. You know that they're they're walking a fine line in the geopolitical struggle. Yeah. Well, look, that brings our geopolitical part of this discussion to to a close. In the next podcast, we're going to continue on by looking at evolving threat vectors for uh, for 2024. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to listen to that one, make sure you tune into the next one. And, Michael, thanks for taking us through this one today. And, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day. The only tool missing from your belt, Simpro. Total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work.